0: Uh, Well, last week, uh, we kicked off a new series. I had two conversations this week. This is crazy to me. Uh, I talked to a a 60-something-year-old business executive and a 16 year old high school student. They both told me the exact same thing that uh, last week we began a series that's one of the most relevant things we've talked about uh, since they've been coming to our church, which um, I'll just have to say, I have to give all of our team credit because it wasn't my idea and I wouldn't have come up with it. Uh, but they came to me several months ago and said, hey, we just sense like this is a, this is a big deal and, and relationships and community and um, the fabric of that's being torn apart in our culture. And, and so I, I sort of relented I, at first, I was resistant, but then I relented, and um, I'm so glad I did as we've kind of put this together. Uh, it's been meaningful uh, for me in my own life. If you weren't with us last week, um, today we're continuing our series, uh, Friendology, and it's, it's all about um, creating a culture of meaningful relationships in our lives, which is something we were designed for. And last week, uh, one of the things we proved, not just from the scriptures, we did it from there as well, but uh, we looked at the Surgeon General Advisory, the Surgeon General in May of this year. Uh, put out a warning about an epidemic that nobody was talking about. And he, he, he said it was maybe the most significant epidemic in our nation's history, which is, which is saying a lot after we've just come out of the pandemic. But Do- Dr. Vivek Murthy, after doing a bunch of study, recognized we're, we're battling an epidemic of loneliness and isolation in our culture. And this combined with the longest running study on happiness, interestingly enough, done by Harvard over eight decades, um, you put these two things together and it's, it's undoubtedly uh, the truth that positive relationships keep us happier, healthier, and medically, they actually help us live longer in life. And last week, we talked about one of the significant things um, that keeps us from that and, and um, there, there's at least three significant barriers to these types of relationships, and and last week we talked about how we're we're more isolated than ever before in, in our in our nation's history, and, but we're also more insulated, um, we're we're less open to others' ideas and more closed off to other people, people specifically that disagree with us, um, but we're also becoming increasingly independent. Next week, uh, last week we talked about isolated. If you if you didn't uh, get to check that out, you can go back and catch up on that. Um, next week we're going to talk about what's led to this insular type of, of, of mindset in our world. And how do we break out of that? How do we break through that? Today, I wanna to talk about independence a little bit. Um, this is a, a very interesting thing because uh, you don't have to think hard about this to realize uh, why we are where we are. The reality is, is for all of us in our lives, um, we were taught from a young age that, uh, that maturity in life is moving from dependency to independency, that when you can be able to do things for yourself, uh, moving from dependency to independency is sort of how you mature. you, you when you can uh, learn to talk and walk, I mean, from the youngest of age and get dressed by yourself and ride a bike and read and write, you, you, when you can do these things and, and you can do them, you know, on your own. This is, this is what we learned, is when you can do these things on your own, that, that sort of this idea of, of being able to do things on your own is sort of a hallmark of maturity. And in fact, when, when, uh, in your life, when you're, you're able to, the phrase is when you're able to stand on your own two feet, right? Or when you move out on your own and you're not, you're not on your parents' payroll anymore and you, you get a job, Excuse me, you get a job and you start a career and you start taking on your own expenses and you, you're able to make decisions on your own. You make decisions to be or to do or, or, or to go wherever you want to go. And, and you sort of doing this on your own is, is what makes you an adult, right? It was, it's what makes you mature. And, and this is a cultural norm that, that in our society it is, is something that's just part of growing up. So So what's the big deal? Well, the big deal, as we talked about last week, is several significant shifts in our culture in, in the, the broader community, the fabric of our culture beginning around the 1970s has, has sort of amplified this in, in, a, in a, a really, actually an unhealthy way. And as we noted last week, first, the, the decrease in value for the nuclear family uh, was, a, was a significant thing that's happened. And, and again, beginning around the 1970s and, and as family um, is devalued, um, there's... This, this initial, and, and again, this is what we talked about last week, the, this initial model for what relationships should look like has become eroded in our culture. When, when, when family is no longer seen as desirable and, and, and healthy, you know, um, one in, in uh, four adults are, more than one in four adults are estranged from their families. And, and many, if not most people in, different, in our communities are transplants, which the, again, this is relatively new in the last half century of our world. People aren't returning, staying or returning to their roots where they're known and, and where people have history with them. And this is even more so in major metropolitan areas. But as, as family um, has been devalued, um, community has broken apart. Not only that, um, this is gonna seem like a strange one, but, but the success, success and prosperity that uh, we've, we've enjoyed really in our country, the success and prosperity that we've enjoyed... Um, primarily through the technological age, um, that's made things more efficient and we've become more effective. And, and as a society, um, we've become more prosperous, um, has led to greater isolation, as we talked about last week. And what's interesting is, um, more than anything else, the internet and, and social media takes the, the primary blame for uh, social disconnection. Um, But all sociologists agree agree that there's something else that was sort of the godfather of something that separated us and began to isolate as a society. It was an earlier uh, technological advancement that that really took off in around the 60s and 70s. Anybody? It's something you all watch on a regular basis, more off the internet now than off network, but it's the television, now, just think about this for a second. I know, I know this seems old, but I'm, a little, I'm getting a little bit old. So just, just hang with me for a second. In 1950, this is fascinating to me. In 1950, only 20% of American households had a TV. In 1950. Less than 30 years later, in 1978, 98% of households had a television. You go, so what? People are watching TV. Here's the thing. Sociologists agree. More than anything else, this began to isolate people because it kept them at home. Instead of going out for entertainment, instead of going spending time with friends, ironically, it kept us at home where we watched television shows later on in my childhood and, and, and teenage and, and, and young adult years. We've stayed at home watching shows like Full House and Family Matters and Fresh Prince and Friends. Instead of having them, we watched them on television. <laughs> these shows all about relationships and we didn't realize it, but it's isolating us. And, and many of these shows, Dealt with things that we wrestle with in life, but instead of engaging in them the way these shows would in some were good models, some were not great models. But but interestingly enough, the primary fallout of all of that was a decrease in engagement and membership to clubs. Now if you're younger, if you're, you're, you're a millennial or you're Gen Z, you may not realize this, but um, civic clubs like uh, Rotary and PTA and Kiwanis and Boys and Girl Scouts, these used to be really, really popular things. And, and they all dramatically dropped in the, in the 80s and the early 90s. And leisure groups, um, book clubs, chess clubs, bird watching clubs, whatever your clubs, they, all these things, they, they, they decreased in people's interest and membership. And the biggest loser, ready for this? The biggest loser was membership to religious groups. Not just Christian, but all sorts of religious groups. And so people began to recede away and and leave and retreat from, from groups and group activities. And they began to entertain themselves at home. And then obviously the internet later on and social media, as we talked about last week, further Exacerbated this, but but here's the thing: Um, there was a third thing, or a fourth thing that happened. Um, There was an openness to psychology. Which, by the way, I'll just, I need to say this for all its benefits. And I'm really grateful because, you know, when I was growing up and and my parents' generation, you know, psychology was kind of a weird thing, it was sort of taboo. Like if you have a therapist, like there's something really wrong with you or whatever. And then we realized, oh no, everybody needs help like this from time to time. They need somebody who's a professional that can help them understand the chemistry of what's happening in their body and mentally and emotionally, what's going on. And we've learned a lot about mental health, but there was at least one significant consequence that was negative because it birthed the self-help movement. And you may go, well, that, that helped a lot of people, but here, here's what it actually did. The, the main thing that the self-help movement did was it left behind JFK's mantra of, uh, you know, um, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That mantra was long gone that from the mid 60s. By the mid 70s, late 70s, we were all about how do I get help? How, how do I help myself? How do I make myself better? And in a, in a study in 1985, a study in linguistics, it's in linguistics, economics, and career interest. So they're studying what are people talking about? What's the main focus of conversation? What, what's, the, what, what's driving economics? And what are, what are the career paths people are moving in? For the first time, Americans' first language became personal ambition. For the first time in American history, And the second language, previously the first, the second and increasingly lagging language of of collective commitment, where once we saw the collective, the community, the the country ahead of ourselves no longer. And, And again, this isn't a poll. This is by looking at all the information available to us and trying to figure out what's the American public's top priority. And the answer is me. This is what fostered the culture of you do you, live your best life, treat yourself, right? <laughs> like that's what you're supposed to do. And, and we, don't, we, don't, we don't realize this, but the self-help movement, the one, the one bad thing about it was it got us all as a society focused on self. And what's become on the rise in our, in our society more than any other time in history is we've moved from a culture of collectivism to a culture of individualism. And this this progression, just so you know, um, we've got lots of examples that this doesn't end well. For societies or for individuals, when you when you sort of add these things up, when you when you you know you're trying to do life on your own and and va- family gets devalued, which is sort of the fabric of, of community. Um, success and prosperity is a part of what you're doing, and you're focused on yourself. Like this doesn't go a, a good place. And 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 to illustrate a little bit today, if I could, I, I want to go to a really familiar story. If you don't have a Bible, Second Samuel. If you have a Bible, Second Samuel chapter eleven. If you don't. Um, or you don't have the Bible app, or you, you would like a physical Bible and, and you can't afford one, um, we would love to give you one. Uh, just ask a volunteer at your church. They'd love to uh, get you a Bible. But, but there's so many of these stories are so helpful because um, understanding and unpacking them helps us understand where we're headed in this story. And it's a very familiar story in the life of King David. I want you to notice the progression of this. So here's where the story begins in, um, in chapter 11. I, I want to detail a little bit of this. But in, in chapter 11 of, of 2 Samuel, it begins this way in verse 1. It says, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israel army to fight the Ammonites. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem he stayed behind as he sent his commanders and all of his mighty men off to war. And late one afternoon, after everybody's off to war, um, all of his advisors and commanders, um, after his midday rest, so David's living, as they say, high on the hog, right? Like he's, he's living his best life. David gets out of bed in the middle of the day, and he's walking around on the roof of his palace. Now, this is important. And um, this is in the sec just a second verse of this part of the narrative in the the, the author of the narrative, as he's recounting the story, he begins to paint a picture. And the picture has a literary theme. The literary theme in the narrative is, is of David being elevated. It starts with him walking on the roof of the palace. David's being elevated. And you're gonna see, not only is he elevated, he's elevating himself. And as he looked out, we're told, as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. And he sent someone to find out who she was. And he was told she's Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now don't miss the humanity in this. Like this is a real conversation amongst men. I mean, he, he, this, is, this is David going, good Lord, who is that? Like, I gotta know who, the, I mean, she's unusual. Like, uh, she is amazing. Who is that I need to know? And so he sends somebody off and somebody goes and finds out who it is and comes back and is like, bruh. That's somebody's daughter, and that's somebody's wife. You stay away from that. But remember, there's nobody there to challenge David. David's top commanders and advisors and his mighty men, they're off at war. So David sends a messenger. That's all they are. They're not here to give advice. He sends a messenger to get her. And she came to the palace. He slept with her. Now look, look at this. This is, this is extraordinary. You, you want to see it in a microcosm the reflection of our culture? Here's what happened to David. David, in his pride, he stayed behind. There are some things that were beneath him that he didn't, he didn't need to do. while well, his mighty men, he sort of delegated the stuff he used to do. And, and he went and he takes someone else, disregarding the value of family, he takes someone else's daughter, someone else's wife, and he commits adultery. And then David, elevating elevating his own values, his own desires, he's gonna get what he wants. He sends somebody to get her. And it's, It's the same thing we see. It's a a microcosm of what happens when you live in this sort of culture, a culture that says what you do doesn't affect other people. You do you, you know, you can can take on the, the successes or the failures, the rewards or the consequences because you can live independently of other people and it's just not true. But the people that were around him, David didn't have anybody around him to challenge him. I mean, these messengers, what could they say? Bathsheba, what could she say? He's the king. None of David's trusted men are around to question him or to caution him. And they probably saw this disaster coming. We see it. But David couldn't see it. And that's at least in part because success is blinding. Some of you know this. The more successful you are, the the past success that you have, it makes us lose sight of future threats. Because we, we begin to feel untouchable. We, feel, we begin to feel like, you know, nothing, nothing can take me down. And, and the more successful and the more powerful you are, the more it is that way. And success is not only blinding, it's intoxicating. In fact, it's such an interesting idea because wealth and means and prosperity, it impairs our judgment. It causes us to do things we wouldn't normally do because we can, not because we should, but because we can And what both do is they tempt us, they tempt us to elevate ourselves, intentionally or unintentionally. You have this temptation, you not only have the temptation, you have the capability. And so that's what people do. And most of you know what happens next. I I don't have time to read all the verses, but, but Bathsheba gets pregnant. So David does what powerful and successful people do. He leverages his power to control the situation and mitigate the consequences. And, and he, he clearly has elevated his desires and his protection and his reputation. They're the priority over and above everybody else's involved. This is how David sees himself over the community, over all the other people that could potentially be involved. And so what he does is he sends for Uriah and has him come back under the guise of, I'm looking for a report. Uh, on how things are going in the war, which is really a scheme to get him to come home and sleep with Bathsheba so that he'll think it's his child when it's really David's child. And, 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 and he, he comes home, Uriah comes home, but he refuses to go home to his wife. In fact, he, he refuses twice to go home and sleep with his wife, even one time after David gets him drunk, which is ironic because David's intoxicated by his success. And even when Uriah's intoxicated, he doesn't, he doesn't make the decision that you would think he would make and stumble and fall. And David's confused by this, of course, because David's confused in general because of his circumstances. And he asked Uriah, why didn't you go home and look at what Uriah says? He, Uriah replied, uh, the ark of the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. Like our men, our armies out and living in tents. And, and Joab, my commander and my master's men are camping in the open fields. You see the contrast. Instead of seeing himself here, Uriah sees the community. He sees the master's men. He sees Joab. He sees the army, the community he's interconnected with as above himself. And he elevates those things above his own desires. Look, he goes on. He says, how could I? How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear, I would never do such a thing. To which at this point you would think David's looking in a mirror and he's like, oh gosh, what have I done? You're right. But that's not what happens. David actually has him killed. He sends him back with his own, his own death sentence in a sealed envelope and he takes it to Joab and they send him out out, out in the front lines and then they pull back and Uriah's killed. And David only delays uh, for the traditional mourning period and then he takes Bathsheba to be one of his wives. You should read your Bible. It's better than Netflix, I promise you. <laughs> I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. Like this is unbelievable that this is happening. And, but you would think at this point, it's like, Yet again, another powerful, wealthy person, crisis avoided. He's handled it. He's mitigated all the consequences. But if you know your Bible, you know that's not what happens. Child dies and there's consequences for David and his future and his family. Lots of people close to him are hurt. And he undermines his own moral authority with everyone around him. And not only that, his greatest failure is documented and cemented in history. And we're reading it today. Not where anybody wants to be. See, while success is blinding and intoxicating, failure, failure is humiliating. And isn't it true that it's difficult to lower yourself when you're struggling and to be vulnerable and to tell other people what's going on, especially when you've screwed up, when you've screwed up big, like it's really difficult and so because of that humiliation, we hide and we isolate ourselves. And failure and struggles are not only humiliating, they're disorienting. In, in, in a similar way to success, actually, we make decisions clouded by emotions. We act in desperation. We cover up and hide and we try to control the situation and avoid the circumstances. See, isn't it true most of the time we think when people are, are struggling or, or they're failing that that creates dependency, and that when people are successful and, and, you know, they're prosperous, that that creates independence and they kind of tend towards independence. But it's actually not the case. Both are often a, a, a result of a desire to be independent, to live independently. Both can isolate and separate us from the people that we need, the people we need around us in our lives. See, the difference, the difference in the two situations between Uriah and David is, is how you see yourself in relationship to the, to the community around you, to the fabric of the society around you. And this is eroding at a rapid rate in our culture. And if, if you think I'm being dramatic, it's okay, but just go read the studies, read the Surgeon General. I mean, there, this, is, this is really important. And if you don't see yourself, if we don't see ourselves in deep need of others, being embedded in healthy, functional, supportive community, we'll be isolated and we'll act independently And and if we act independently, we're no longer one nation united under God. See, all of those ideas are important, but we've never been more divided than ever because the focus is on self and personal ambition. And like like David, we're tempted to see our success and our failure as an outcome of our own doing And we take on the rewards and the consequences or the struggles on our own because these things have have multiplied and amplified this idea that it's not a bad idea, learning to become more independent so that you can be a, a, a healthier contributor to other people. But if you do recognize how critical the web of relationships are, you're far more likely to act interdependently. Like that's what actually what... We were, we were created for. In fact, there's actually something called the law of interdependence. And the law of interdependence says that, that nobody acts completely on their own. You know, true, to, true independence is a myth. Life is connected. That's why it's a law. And, and you know this is true because virtually every day your life is impacted in big or small ways by people and circumstances that are beyond your control. Let's just take a few easy ones real quick. The value of your home. How much, how much control do you have? You have some control, but the value of your home is largely beyond your control. The value of your 401k, you have some control, but the, 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 the real control is beyond your, your, your control. The, the length of your commute to work, none of us have control over that. The health of your marriage, how your kids turn out. See, th- there's a lot of stake in this. And some of the circumstances and influences or influencers are, are within our control, but many of them are beyond our control. And some of them are, are, are not in our control at all. But here's the thing, when, when you embed yourself in healthy, functioning, interdependent community, here's what happens. People around you are constantly checking you, aren't they? They're, they're constantly, especially in small ways in the beginning when you're acting inappropriately. And, and actually the psychological literature says they, they're actually helping you stay sane. Like when you look around our culture and you're like, people are insane. That's exactly right. And it's, 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 it's like clinically, it's exactly right. When we isolate ourselves, we have a proclivity toward insanity. Listen to this. There's a study that was done um, in an uh, in, in incarcerated facility, a bunch, a bunch, of, a bunch of inmates. And one of the things they discovered is even the most antisocial criminals, so those who had very low regard for human life, they've done some of the worst things you can think of. The most antisocial criminals found solitary confinement absolutely unbearable. Isn't that interesting? People that had no regard for others and they've committed the worst crimes, they found solitary confinement unbearable because incarceration is difficult enough. It's impossible alone. They saw the tendency of these antisocial criminals towards insanity. This is why people navigating difficult circumstances alone do irrational and insane things. We cannot, we we don't and we cannot live our best life independently of other people. Look, just let me press for just a second. Don't be mad at me, but like, here's the truth. There's a lot wrong with you. There is there's a lot of things wrong with you. And there's a lot of things wrong with me. And there are things that you can't see. I'm not saying you're an antisocial criminal, by the way. Like I'm not comparing you. I'm just saying like, you have stuff, you do. If you didn't know that, ask somebody who knows you well. They'll tell you, you have stuff. And it's stuff, look, it's stuff that needs to be dealt with. And you'll never get it, get it all dealt with. You'll never get rid of it all because life has a way of helping us accumulate more stuff, doesn't it? Like you, you, you move from one situation to another and you think, okay, I got, I got my stuff at least manageable and, and, and people are helping with that. And then you move in this situation, you're like, oh my goodness, I got all this new stuff. And, and it, it's, it's because those, those new experiences are things that you don't know how to react to and act in. And we, oftentimes we feel insecure and we act improperly. But when our lives are woven together interdependently with other people, they help us deal with our stuff and help us smooth out our rough edges. They let you know when your jokes aren't funny, which you guys do that for me all the time. Um, uh, uh, If you have close friends, this is the most interesting thing to me. Um, a, A close friend's natural reaction, if you're paying attention, if you're paying attention, a close friend's natural reaction tells you when you're being foolish, and when you're being arrogant, and when you're being selfish, and it's just by how they react. They don't even need to tell you. You see them, they're going, wait, wait, I, I'm in this sort of interconnected, interdependent relationship with you. And, and like the way you're behaving, I, I don't think I want to get sucked into that. So they, they sort of sort of retreat or pull back away from you a bit. And that's an indicator you, you, you recognize, like if you're paying attention, oh wait, I'm, I'm doing something wrong. I'm acting improperly. And, and this is just the value of proximity and being around somebody who is truly interdependent with you in a relationship. On top of that, when other people, and this is a really important part of this, when other people that you really care about are in need, you quite literally can't focus on yourself. Do you know how good this is for you? Like I know some, some of us think, oh, I gotta be in close relationship with people that have burdens and that are in crisis. I'm gonna get sucked into all that. But do you know how good that is for you to get your focus off of yourself when everything else in culture is pushing you towards to focus on yourself? When you care about somebody who's going through a difficult time or a struggle and it causes you to have to shift your focus off of yourself and onto them, it keeps you sane. It keeps you from doing stupid things. It keeps you from acting in crazy ways. And healthy communities, healthy interdependent communities are where we share life's burdens together and they're equally distributed. Sometimes you carry other people's burdens. Uh, sometimes you're offloading things that are weighing you down to other people, or you're taking on something that's too much for someone else around you or meeting their need or showing up for them. And, and the truth is, is, is that's, a, that's, that's, that's the way you were designed. Now, there's, there's some of you, and, and this, there's a difference. I just need to pause real quick um, before we sort of land the plane. There, there are some of you that are in relationships that are, that are actually not interdependent. In fact, they're, they're more um, characterized by codependence. And, and this, this is codependence right here. It's when, you know, in, in codependent relationships, um, codependence, sorry, it's tough to talk sometimes and write words that you're not saying. Um, codependence, in, in a codependent relationship, there's a giver and there's a taker. And this is what's fascinating about this is the giver needs to be needed. So they're not actually independent, but they're confused about whether they're independent or they're dependent. They they, they need to be needed is the giver. And the taker pretends like they don't need from the giver, but they do. And those happen at extremes. And you have two people that are confused between dependency and independency. And that's, that's actually not at all what interdependency is. Um, but interdependency is, is when we, when we rely on each other, but there's, there's also a thing that can happen here with interdependency. When, when one person is acting interdependent, like, hey, I'm going to give and take, and I'm going to let you lean on me, and you're going to let me lean on you, but the, the other person sort of is acting independently, like, hey, that's great, I'll help you, but I don't need your help. There, there's, there becomes an imbalance in relationships, and, and, um, we we have relationships that, that can become dysfunctional, or at the very least, there's confusion, there's frustration in those relationships. But interdependent relationship. This is this is this is what I, what I wanted to get to. Interdependent relationships. They're not you're not meant to, to be on your own. You're actually meant for something in the scriptures. It's called it's it's the Greek word alle alone. I know that sounds like I made that up, but I didn't. It's actually a Greek word. Here here it is right here. It's the Greek word, and and you've seen this before, it's translated in the New Testament as one another. It means mutually or reciprocally, that there's things that we're meant to experience mutually and reciprocally and to do for one another. This occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament. It's It's all through the New Testament, our instructions as to who we're supposed to be as a community of faith, as a family in our relationships and in our friendships. And here's some examples. We're to love one another and restore one another and carry one another's burdens and bear with one another and be kind to one another and accept one another and encourage one another and submit to one another. These things matter. And there's, these are the things that we need. In fact, it, it, psychologists have identified seven keystones for healthy, supportive relationships. You can go look this up. Um, there, there's these seven keystones. And if you categorize those seven things, I, I took all, of, or if you had to categorize all the one others in scripture, the, the hundred plus um, occurrences of that, if you categorize those, they basically are these seven keystones. And they've been there right there in the scriptures all this time. And we're now catching up to it going, hey, people need these seven things. And here's the seven keystones. They need, people need safety and security in relationships. They need people that can help them learn and grow. They need physical and practical help. They need romantic intimacy. They need fun and relaxation. They need emotional closeness and confiding, affirmation and shared experience. So here's what we did. I told you I wanted this to be incredibly practical. Um, as we're talking about forging new friendships and, and networks or, or uh, communities around us that we can engage in, not like one friend or just being married to somebody. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how do we reestablish the fabric of relationships in our community that we all need. We've created a tool for you to take an inventory. It's sort of a, a friendology assessment and it's based on these keystones. And it's sort of an x-ray for your relational health. And, and so there's further description. I'm, I'm gonna, on, on the website, when you get the tool, you'll, you'll be able to read further description on all of these things. But we just want you to take this, this quick assessment. It's, it's anonymous. Um, you don't put your name down. You're just gonna, it's gonna help you uh, sort of assess, like, where am I healthy? Like, where, where am I deficient in my relationships in terms of the things that I need to be healthy and whole? And, and where are my strengths? And so this will give you sort of an indication. And someone at your church will tell you um, how you can access this later uh, um, at the end of the service. Um, but here's why this is important because discovering the gaps in your web of relationships um, could provide some really helpful and practical information for you. Like when I took this assessment, I found out that I'm, a, I'm, I'm deficient in... Um, having close friends that I have fun and relax with. So, babe, that felt like I just got a golf pass for, for like, <laughs> she's like, great. Um, but but you know one of the things I I don't realize sometimes like I have we have so much fun as a family and and it's so much fun with the kids and I and 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 you know with with other people as well but it's not something I prioritize in my life but it's it's something you need because those relationships sometimes in that fun and relaxation it forges greater familiarity and greater intimacy and and look you may have plenty of people that you have fun with but but you have no one to confide in and maybe you only have one person that you go to for help. And that's just not enough because you can overwhelm that person or stress that person. Maybe you lack people who challenge you to become the best version of yourself. So I hope you'll take advantage of this because it could be incredibly revealing. But I wanna close today with the end of David's story because David was actually deficient in challenge. As we said he didn't have people around him that would challenge him. And in some sense, some of you, you may be as well. And the truth is, is David needed a friend, and because David needed a friend, the Lord sent Nathan. This is this is beautiful. This is evidence of God's grace. David was acting not only independently; David was inaccessible. And here's what's interesting: He didn't pick Nathan out of nowhere. The last time Nathan came to David, he brought some incredibly helpful. And, and really important and valuable information that was, that was important for David's success and prosperity. And so he had already had sort of an interdependent relationship with Nathan, but Nathan was, he was far off. He was out at war. So but God sends Nathan to David and God sends the one person he knew could get close to the king. And so in his grace, he sends, before it's all lost, he sends Nathan to David and he tells David this story. Some of you remember this. He tells him a story about a rich man and a poor man. And this rich man uh, was entertaining a guest. A traveling guest came through town and the rich man was gonna have them come stay at his house and he was gonna prepare a meal for them. And instead of using his wealth or riches or his cattle, he goes and he steals the poor man's only lamb. It was more of a family pet than anything else. He steals it and he slaughters it to entertain and to feed his guests. And when David hears this story, We're told that David burns with anger and he's so mad and he says, who is this man? I vow to kill this rich man. Then Nathan said to David, you, you are the man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you. Look at this. I anointed you, king of Israel. I saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if it had not been enough, that hadn't been enough, I would have given you much, much more. God says, I, I, I know this is what you need. You need Alone. So here's what I'm gonna do. You can't do this life on your own. So I'm gonna send you Nathan. Somebody I know you trust. Somebody I know you've allowed to influence your life before. But I want you to know I'm not only sending you David, I was the one who established your house. I'm the one who gave you the family you have. I'm the one who established you as king and gave you the kingdoms. I'm the one that allows you to rule and sustains you. And if you had trusted me, if you had lived properly, I would have given you so much more. I don't know what God has for you and what he wants to supply for you, but I guarantee you it's more than you're thinking. It's much more. See, this is important. These these things are connected. So Nathan, ask the question, David, now that I've reflected back to you what you've done, why? Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? Why have you done this? I'll tell you. Back to the beginning of the story. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. He was entitled. He'd made it. He was successful. And then when he acted improperly and all came crashing down, all of that's on the line. David saw himself above the people around him, around the community. He operated independently and isolated himself, eventually hurting himself and lots of other people around him. I have a very successful friend, who in recent days, um, and he's successful by all measures. If I were to tell you his story, um, several years ago, he began to be more absent from his closest friends. um, And uh, he began to help hold people at arm's length around him and people that could keep him from doing things he wouldn't normally do, keeping him from acting stupid, to be honest with you. And it started small, but nobody was around and noticed, and he had anybody he could tell, and he had a lot at stake, and it, it grew. And over time, it came to the place to where he couldn't keep it a secret anymore. And when it broke apart, he lost his job. He lost his future financial security. But he lost more than that. He lost the respect of his kids. He almost lost his wife. It's still an ongoing story. Here's why I tell you that is and don't be mad at me. I say this as your pastor, like taking on life on your own, taking on life on your own, it doesn't make you strong. It makes you stupid. It does. It makes us insane. It makes us crazy. It makes us do things we wouldn't normally do. And here's the thing. Some of you today, I mean, there's different ways we're all deficient in our relationships, but some of you, you need a Nathan in your life. But you've kept them at arm's length. You've kept them away. And maybe it's that person that you resist allowing in and they keep pursuing you, but you don't let them in because you know what they're gonna tell you. You know when they see behind the scenes, they, you know what they're gonna challenge you on. But that could be the person that your spouse or your parents or your kids have been praying that God would bring into your life. Trust me, you want to find a Nathan before God has to send you one. When God has to send you one, you know the circumstances have gotten much worse. It's still a gift. It's still God's grace here's the thing, if I could just plead with you, you were not designed to face life's successes or struggles on your own. You were designed for all alone. That is why God gave us one another. He placed us in a community of people empowered by his spirit that could walk alongside us, that we could be interdependent with. See, it's a biblical principle, but as we see it, eroding. We see our society, the fabric of our society eroding with it. It doesn't lead good places, not as a society and not as individuals. So my prayer is that today, you would take a step, maybe just a small step by taking this, this, this survey or this, this inventory, this assessment, so you could figure out where am I deficient? Where are the holes? What do I need that I'm not experiencing? And then you'd take steps to pursue it We're going to talk in coming weeks about opportunities you, you can take to to connect within our body but that you would be diligent about shoring up those gaps in the relational fabric of your relationships around you so that God could continue to deliver to you the much much more that he's planned for your life let me pray for you. God thank you today I just Pray that we would receive this word today, this challenge, and that we would recognize that none of us were designed to act independently on our own. And, and it's our pride that wants to do that. We want to be the God of our own lives. It's the original sin all over again. And so I just, I, I pray that today, Uh, for someone who's here, who's found themselves isolated and acting independently and maybe they've gotten themselves in some trouble or maybe it's early on. I I pray that supernaturally you bring somebody into their life, bring somebody around them, uh, bring them to take a step towards a a young adult's group or towards a men's group or towards a women's group or 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 towards a friend, a trusted friend from the past, that they would take steps in that direction to act interdependently as opposed to independently in life. Help us to know exactly what to do with what we heard today. And then help us to be diligent to to follow through and do it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.